Thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, picking up where we've left off in the past, and so uh, going right through there, just taking our time and uh, seeing what's there. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a... I'm a person who likes to feedback. I'm a person who uh, doesn't normally read the warning labels on food products. Now, I'm really highly sensitive to the expiration date, but I don't ever really turn around and look at the warning labels. Warning labels, are, they're written, they're the small print, they're kind of there. Uh, I, I ran across, across a few this week. One was uh, out of a Coke product that's uh, in California, and it says, drinking beverages with added sugar contributes to obesity, diabetes, and tooth decay. I don't know if that's a shocker to any of you if you've never turned around the Coca-Cola can to realize that it's not good for you. Uh, I found another one that said, um, caution, food may be hot after microwaving. Just in case, I mean, I think they're just covering themselves there, but some of the best small labels are found on hot sauces, right? So I found two I wanna share with you. It says, use only with food. Not as paint stripper, rat poison, or bomb accelerant. I don't think I want to try that uh, hot sauce. Here's another one. Keep away from children, pets, wimps, and anyone with acid reflux. I think that's probably wise. Uh, I, I know that we sometimes skip over the fine print. We sometimes skip over the warning label. And when it comes to Christianity, as we pick up where we left off last week, we see that the Christianity had a warning label that was given by Jesus Christ. It's, it's kind of fine print. You kind of look over. It's not really the, the things that you want to look at on, on the label. But he said this in John chapter 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, this is a warning label that if you take on the name of Jesus Christ, that you will be persecuted. The world will hate you. As these men today have gone through the waters of baptism, they have made a public declaration of their faith. And in many countries, that's illegal. In many countries, they have to do baptisms in secret because they understand that if you claim the name of Christ, if you take on that identity as a Christian and you make a public profession of that through baptism, that there is now a mark on your life. So my point this morning in Acts chapter four, verses one through 22, is proclaiming Christ isn't politically correct. Now I said that last week, but this week I want to kind of unfold that a little bit more. Politically correct is this word, you know, that we often hear as PC. It's a term that describes language, ideas, policies, and behavior seen as seeking to minimize social and institutional offense in occupational, gender, racial, cultural, sexual orientation, religious belief, disability, and age-rated context. The key word is offense. The truth about Christianity is it's offensive. It has been since the very beginning. John MacArthur says, 
it this way, it is the Jewish persecution that we see in the first part of the book of Acts, but in the latter part of the book of Acts, it's the Roman persecution. It's in the Gentile Roman world. The first great persecutor was Nero, and that commences about AD 67, and punishments for Christians were bizarre. They were sewed into skins of animals, and they were fed to hungry dogs. They were drenched in wax and then lit as torches to light parties and streetways. The next persecution after Nero was Domitian, and he used the rack to literally separate body parts of Christians. They were seared, they were burned, they were boiled, they were scourged, they were stoned, and they were hanged. They were lacerated and they were burned with hot irons, all because they professed the name of Christ. We can't ignore the fact that there's a world out there and a culture out there that's not kind and considerate to those who call themselves Christians. In fact, the world is becoming more and more hostile. As I did some research this week, I looked at Open Doors, which is a website that talks about the persecuted church. And it says there's around 260 million Christians who live in the top 50 most hostile countries on the world watch list that face high to extreme levels of persecution for their faith. This does not include the more than 50 million other believers experiencing high levels of persecution in other countries not listed in the top 50. Attacks against churches in the last year have, has risen 500%. Not only is persecution going on like this, but it's gone on digital. Persecution keeps up with the modern developments and governments are increasingly using surveillance. The explosion of digital technologies has been used to target Christians, particularly in China and in India, where facial recognition technologies and artificial intelligence have been used to identify and discriminate against believers. As we get into Acts chapter 4, we see the very first persecution of the church. This is where it all begins, and it's some weeks after, days, weeks after the church starts. It's right off the get-go that there's persecution that comes against those who proclaim Christ. Most recently, I read this week in the news that there was a pastor named James Coates in Cleveland, or in, not in Cleveland, whoa, that'd be too close, in Canada. And uh, he was arrested for continuing to host in-person church gatherings. The church and its pastor have been found to be repeatedly in violation of public health restrictions put in place to reduce the transmission of COVID-19. The public health rules included 15% capacity, mask mandates, physical distancing, no singing, no communion, and no conversing with anyone outside of your immediate family. Coates was fined. The pastor was fined in December. Alberta Health Services ordered the church to close in January, and he was later arrested in February. Persecution has a plan. It's been the very plan from the, from the beginning. Persecution's plan is to silence the proclamation of Christ. Persecution comes in all different forms, but its end goal is to silence you. It can silence you with a culturally accepted social gospel. It can persecute you and silence you by crumbling your witness, silence you by compromising your beliefs of what's acceptable, silence you by continually bombarding you with worldly entertainment that shows that sin's acceptable. Persecution can silence you by cutting you off from society and from support from other brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And if none of that works, it can seek to silence you with a sword. This is where we pick up in Acts chapter 4. And as we get into this section of Scripture, I want to I read what Tony Morita says, and then we'll pray. As we consider the history of opposition to the Christian faith, and as we approach this text, we must ask whether we are being opposed. If we cannot cite evidence, at least mild forms of persecution at work or in our lives, it is possible that we have a nimble faith, or perhaps a closet faith that evades opposition. Let's pray. Father, as we get into your word, we would ask, Father, for your spirit to lead into God, that the words on pages would penetrate our heart, that it would be sharper than a double-edged sword, that it would divide bone and marrow, and Lord, it would pierce deep, and there would be a deep conviction in our lives to live lives that proclaim you. Proclaim Christ, proclaim a resurrection. Father, we thank you for the the wonderful witness of baptism that proclaims a resurrection, that there is hope after this life. Father, we know that you sent your very own son so that we could have hope and have life and have a resurrection to look forward to. And so, Lord, we thank you for the testimonies this morning. We thank you for the testimony of your word. In Christ's name, amen. First thing I want you to see is proclaiming Christ isn't politically correct because it's annoyingly exclusive in salvation annoyingly exclusive. So let's look at the first 12 verses there. If you have your Bibles, please follow along. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly, there's the word, annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had, who had, who had heard that word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were in the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is... Salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There was the annoyingly exclusiveness of salvation right there on that last verse. Now, some of you are coming in on this. Last week, Peter and John, they're on their way into the temple, and there's a lame man. He's laying there. He's been begging for years. We find out by the end of this chapter, he's in his 40s, so he's getting pretty old, right? He's, he's 40. And so, ah, uh, uh, yeah. I understand, I understand. So, you know, he's getting older. He's in his 40s. He's been laying there. He's never walked a day in his life, and he's begging for alms, and they say, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. And so he gets up and walks, and not only does he walk, but he leaps and he jumps, and he goes into the temple, and there's a huge commotion that takes place. And so this is what we see happening now. Peter, full of the Spirit, begins to preach, begins to proclaim Christ. Hey, why are we being arrested here? Why are we being taken captive Are we being accused of healing a man, of doing a good deed? What's going on here? And you see that these Sadducees and these rulers, 
were annoyed. They were highly annoyed. The Greek word for annoyed means troubled, displeased, and offended. Offended. This offends me. As I've talked to you and said, proclaiming Christ is not politically correct. The key word there is offense. You're offending me with your exclusive claims. What you're saying does not sit well with me. Now, this word pops up again later on in the book of Acts. It's the only other place I see it in Scripture. is Acts 16, 16 through 18. As we're going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. There's an exclusive claim there. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Annoyed, offended. They're greatly annoyed and they're greatly offended because these are the ones who had just put Christ to death. And now they're proclaiming Christ and showing a miracle of his power still evident in the lives of those in Jerusalem, in the temple. So how do you have all these temple leaders who had just crucified Christ allowing this mob of people to join together in the name of Christ? Hey, you're annoying us with this exclusivity of salvation. Peter and John, I want you to see, we're preaching and proclaiming a Messiah's resurrection. They were not proclaiming moral rules. They were not proclaiming moral rules. Number one, because the religious leaders of that day thought they were moral. They thought that they were following the law. They thought that they were following everything and their good deeds was gonna be good enough to get them into heaven. So they don't come in and preach, hey, you need to be a better person. You need to do this. You need to stop doing this. No, what they proclaimed was the resurrection of the Messiah because that's the only hope we have over sin. It's not being a better person. It's not following all the rules. It's that Jesus Christ came and he lived the perfect life that we can't live and he died the death we should have died, but he rose again on the third day to give us an everlasting hope that there is hope and there's salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ alone. Amen. This is an exclusive claim and it's highly offensive. Let me tell you, there's a huge disconnect in a believer who preaches rules but never preaches the resurrection. There's a huge disconnect there. That disconnect means that I think that my good deeds is good enough. But if we proclaim a resurrection, we proclaim the fact that we're not good enough. There had to be a Savior come and die on our behalf. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 17. Now, if Christ is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and, our, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The reason you preach Christ and him crucified and him resurrected is because it's the only hope we have of getting out of our sin. It's the only hope. And this is offensive. This is highly offensive and it's annoying to a culture who doesn't want to hear it. I don't want to hear that. I don't want you to tell me I'm wrong. I don't want you to tell me that my truth is not truth. I don't want you to tell me that my lifestyle is not an appropriate lifestyle. Would you stop telling me I'm a sinner, please? 
It's, it's annoyingly, annoyingly offensive to them. Paul would say in Colossians 1:28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, look, I'm proclaiming Christ. It's Peter and John, they're proclaiming Christ. And what happens in verse three is they are arrested and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. They preached, they proclaimed, and those who heard came to Christ. It says men there, 5,000 men. We, we know that that word in Greek is the only, you know, inclusive word for men only. So that is opposed to women and children. It's saying 5,000 men. So then you've got women and children on top of that. So you could have 10 to 15 to 20,000 people gathered together in this temple proclaiming Jesus Christ because one man has been healed. And now Peter's proclaiming it. This is quite offensive and quite annoying, would you say? I want you to also understand that the Bible makes a clear distinction between male and females. And that's highly offensive. Verse five, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. These names are familiar because just weeks earlier, they're the ones who put Jesus Christ on a cross. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deeds done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is important for us to understand as believers that as we come to salvation, now we understand Peter's already been filled with the Spirit. He's already preached once in Acts chapter two, but again, he stands before this council full of the Spirit, full of boldness, and he proclaims to them words that are given to him by the Holy Spirit. We know this because Jesus told them that this would happen in Luke chapter 21. He said, and he said to them, nations will rise against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence, not plagues, right? And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. He says, now some of you will die. Some of you will be put to death for my name's sake, but there is hope in a resurrection. Not, not a hair on your head will, will not make it into, the, into, the, into eternity. He's saying like, look, this will happen and don't you worry about what you're gonna say because I'm gonna fill you with the Spirit. So what the Spirit does in the life of a believer is mysterious. It, 
comes into our lives and it fills us with his very own presence. It fills us with his very own power. It seals us until the day of redemption, but it also gives us moments where it leads us and guides us into all wisdom and equips us at just the opportune time to proclaim Christ. I don't, Jeff, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could talk about Jesus. I don't know if I could get up and talk about him the way you do. I'm just not as educated. I just, I haven't gone to seminary. I don't, I don't know if I could do that. I mean, yeah, I've sat in church my whole life, but I just don't know if I could talk about Jesus. Don't worry about it. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're given the opportunity, he will fill you with his presence and his power so you can boldly proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't get bogged down with all the morals and all the rules. Proclaim Christ. And it's highly offensive. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is annoyingly exclusive. This was quoted from Psalms 118, 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's saying to the religious people, look, you've built your entire faith upon good works and the law was given for one reason and one reason only to show you that you can't do it, that you're a sinner and that you need a savior. And you killed him. You killed him. You tripped over him. You, you, you were offended by him. He said in John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's annoyingly exclusive. See, well, I have a problem with that. I don't think it's fair. What about the people who have never heard the name of Jesus? Well, what about, what about the people? Man, they're good people. I, I, I just, it's hard for me to understand how a good person can be sent to hell. I just don't understand that. You see, God made man in his very own image. And man sinned. And man chose to separate himself from a holy God. But in that moment, God provided a sacrifice. He covered their nakedness. And he said to them, one day I will send a Messiah to make all things new, to bring you back into a right relationship with me. So what God did was he made himself his very own people that he would bless. He promised them the Messiah would come through them. He took them by the hand and led them out of slavery in Egypt. And he gave them a promised land. And he said, here is my law and here is my presence and I will lead and I will guide you. And yet they rebelled and they went after other gods. And so he sent prophets. And those prophets would show up and say, hey, you need to come back to the Lord. You're, you're following after other gods. And they were so offended by that that they would stone the prophets and kill the prophets. And so one day, God decided, you know what? I will send my very own son, the one who was there in the beginning, who created all things and holds all things together. I will send him to be my messenger, to show them my love. And you killed him. But God raised him from the grave to show us that there is a resurrection life, that there is hope for us because we are a sinful people and we can't do it without Jesus Christ. It's highly offensive. It's annoyingly exclusive. The second thing is proclaiming Christ isn't politically correct because it's astonishingly confrontational against sin. It's astonishingly confrontational. Let's pick up again verse 10 and go through 14. 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for no other name under heaven given among men which, by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were, there's the word, astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the men, the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. It is astonishingly confrontational. Many of us in this room, we're not confrontational people. Anybody just, you're the person that will not make eye contact. You're like, I don't want to be confrontational. I'm not going to get into an argument. I don't want to have any part of that. I'm just going to go about my business. Now, there's others of us in this room who love confrontation. Am I right? Yes. And you're like, yeah, bring it on. I need a good argument. I haven't had one all week. So like you, you're highly confrontational. And so this word confrontational kind of begins to mean that there's going to be a clashing of forces that takes place. You come with what you got and I'll come with what I got and we'll see who wins. That's confrontation. But that's not biblical confrontation. Let me tell you what biblical confrontation is. Biblical confrontation is having a face-in-face encounter with someone in order to bring a biblical truth to an area of concern. It's having a face-to-face encounter with someone where you take a biblical truth and you put it into an area of concern. Hey, there's a, I have a concern. I'm concerned for you. There's, there's, a, there's a pattern in your life. There's decisions in your life that I see that are, that are not matching up to a biblical truth that we hold ourselves to. Now, that doesn't sound like a force and a force coming together to see who wins, does it? It sounds like someone who is so deeply hurt and concerned and so not, not offended personally, but, but knows that sin offends God, that they want to see the truth come out in that person's life. Biblical confrontation exposes sin. It elevates Christ in such a way that it exposes sin and hopefully it expedites repentance. And if we're going to confront people for any other reason than that, then it's not biblical confrontation. If we confront people on a basis of hatefulness or haughtiness and not out of deep concern and love, we're not not elevating Christ. We're actually elevating the law. You see, Peter came and he proclaimed a confrontational message to these these leaders and he did it full of the spirit, not full of spite. I want you to understand that. There's a lot of times where we want to point out someone's sin out of spite. You know what? I'm going to tell you you're wrong. And I'm going to tell you how you're wrong. And then I'm going to tell everybody else how you're wrong so we all know that you're wrong and then we'll see who's wrong, Right? It's not out of spite. It's out of the Spirit. He's full of the Spirit. His confrontation was one of love. People of the Spirit are people of love. People of spite are people of law. And there's a lot of people in the church that want to confront people about sin in their life because that sin doesn't meet their level of law. You're not living up to the standard that we're supposed to be living up to. Rather than coming to them with a deep concern, a biblical truth, and bringing it into an area of concern. 
There's a huge difference in having such a deep love for God and a deep love for others that it compels us to confront sin, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those around us. There's a deep, there's a, there's a difference between that and then having a disgust or a spite for others who haven't kept up their end of the deal. We're to be people of the Spirit, people of love. John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 1 John 4, 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So what's so astonishing about this confrontation that takes place with Peter and John? They're astonished because they're uneducated men that it's obvious have been in the presence of Jesus Christ. Would you not love to live in such a way that people recognize that person's been with Jesus? Not that person's highly religious. There's a lot of times where people, oh, they're really religious. They don't, they don't, they don't do that. They don't do that. They're all about these laws, all about these rules. How often is it that people see the way we live and the way we bring biblical truth into conversation? They're like, man, it's obvious. They've been with Jesus. They've been, they've been spending time in their word. The Christian life is astonishingly confrontational. Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted as well. James 5, 19 through 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Paul in Ephesians says, we are to speak truth in love. Tim Keller, in his commentary on Acts, he says this about the early church. They were both attractive and growing, yet hated and attacked. This description of the early church cuts us in two ways. If on one hand, we experience no attacks for persecution for our faith, it means that we simply are being cowards. We are not taking risk in our witness. We're not being bold. On the other hand, if we experience attacks without fruitfulness, and attractiveness, i.e. we get lots of persecution and no affirmation, it may mean that we are being persecuted for being harsh or insensitive or strident. Jesus said we would only be blessed if we were persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's quite possible, indeed it's very normal, for Christians to be persecuted not for their faith, but for their discourtesy, their insensitivity, and lack of warmth and respect in their dealings with others. Insensitive, harsh Christians will have persecution, but not praise. Cowardly Christians will have praise, but no persecution. Most Christians whose walk with God is weak actually get neither. But Christians who are closest to Jesus will get both, as he did. Let me ask you today, are people astonished at the confrontation that comes up when you bring a biblical truth to a concern? 
Third, thirdly, proclaiming Christ isn't politically correct because it's aggressively committed to Christ. Picking up verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at this time in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. He was old. The gospel is not politically correct because it's exclusive on salvation. It's confrontational on sin, and it's committed to sharing the good news. There's a reason why it's not politically correct, because it's aggressively committed. You can't tell me to stop. You can't tell me not to proclaim Christ. You can't tell me that I can't give hope to those who are lost in sin. You can't tell me that I'm not commanded to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't tell me to stop. Whether it's right, you judge. Whether it's politically correct, you judge. But I can't stop. I am committed. The gospel is, is incompatible with the idea of universalism, that all paths lead to God, that everybody's just on their own trail, and one day we'll all get there, because it's exclusive. By no other name are people saved but Jesus Christ. It's against inclusism. Those who are ignorant of sin and never hear of Christ will be forgiven. Well, what happens to the person who never hears of Christ? What, what about those people that never get the chance? Just because they're, innocent, they're ignorant of sin does not mean they're innocent of sin. And it's inconceivable to think that believers filled with the Spirit can keep quiet about it. It's inconceivable. How, how can people who know the truth of Jesus keep quiet? Which leads us to a point in this where we say, if I truly believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how do I keep that to myself? Am I going to let politically correctness keep me quiet? No. I'm going to preach the exclusive claims of salvation. I'm going to confront people with love because I want to take biblical truths and bring them to areas of concern. And I'm going to be committed to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is going to be highly offensive to many. Verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. While Christians are called to be those who obey rules and authorities, to show civil obedience when appropriate, we're not to confuse the authorities in their hierarchy of Scripture. 
Paul says in Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, what's funny about this is that Paul is repeatedly thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. He's saying this while Emperor Nero, which I referred to in the very beginning of the sermon, is lighting Christians on fire and sewing them into different animal skins and allowing dogs to attack them. So what he's saying here is that we, know, we must understand the umbrellas of authority and all authority is under God. So whatever God has commanded is what we're called to. Even if there's lesser authorities that tell you otherwise. What the apostles teach us in scripture and what they show us in their witness throughout scripture is that Christians are never given the license to sin nor are they permitted to abandon the commands of God in order to obey the orders of human beings. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. R.C. Sproul says it perfectly. Only a few weeks had gone by since the apostles had heard the words of Jesus that we call the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19. Jesus gave to Peter and to John and to the entire church of the first century, here's a good word, a mandate. It is our mandate too. If any authority under heaven comes to the Christian and tells him he may not pray or preach or worship or tithe or do any of the things God commands, that Christian is not only to disobey, he must disobey. Here's the most important part. We are always to obey those in authority over us unless that authority commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us to do something God commands. Make no mistake. Peter and John are engaging in an act of civil disobedience, but they're doing so in order to be faithful to the Lord. They're not doing so to rebel against social and political agendas. It's about proclaiming Christ. If we make it about anything else than proclaiming Christ, then we've missed it. We've gone off track. We've chosen to be offended. We've chosen to say, no, you can't tell me that. We are called to proclaim Christ. We're called to be submissive to his authority. We're called to do the commands that he set forth in God's word. We're called to be people who it's evident have been with Jesus. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Go to our website, meadowviewbaptist.com, or subscribe to hear more sermons like this, or to get more information about how to be involved at Meadowview Baptist.